This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Public Health Madison and Dane County released a report on drug fatalities today. Now, drug overdoses increased in the county with 90% of deaths involving some form, form of opioid. 138 people lost their lives to drug overdoses in 2020, and that's a 39% increase from 2016. Additionally, the health agency found deaths from synthetic opioids, such as fentanyl, have increased rapidly in the past six years. Dane County is looking to become a sports destination as the county board is slated to vote on a feasibility study to study the prospect of building an indoor sports complex. The Wisconsin State Journal reports the study will look into what kind of facility would best fit the area, as well as determine potential sites for the indoor sports complex. The Dane County Board will vote on the study tonight. The meeting starts at 7 p.m. Also on tonight's agenda, an amendment to the Code of Ethics for county officials, which would cover sexual harassment and discrimination. Albert Gardens has put a sign up on Atwood Avenue that reads, Big Stinky Flower. Crowds have been lining up all day to witness and sniff the blooming of the corpse flower. The rare plant began to unfurl last night and will stay open for just a day or two. The corpse flower is famous for emitting an odor that's similar to rotting flesh. It's been 12 years since this corpse flower, one of four at Ulbrich, last bloomed. And now on to today's top stories. The city of Madison has around 650 planted medians, which is to say medians with plant beds for flowers, bushes, and other native plant life. But city leaders are weighing whether to convert a little less than a fifth of those medians to a cheaper option of concrete and turf grass. WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. The city of Madison is looking to alter what's in about 110 medians around the city, striking planting beds and bushes in those medians and turning most to concrete or turf grass. Under the proposal, approximately 110 of the city's 650 total planted medians would be affected. 62 planting beds would be turned to turf, 27 planting beds would be turned to concrete, and roughly 20 would have some turf intermixed with planting beds. It's a change the city says is prompted by financial squeeze. Currently, about a third of the city's planted medians, 208, are maintained by private contractors. Under the city's current budget, funding to maintain these medians was slashed by almost half, from $165,000 a year to about $86,000. Greg Fries is the assistant city engineer. He says that it's been harder and harder to get adequate contractors for the job. Fries tells WORT that in the past five years, it's been difficult to find more than three contractors to bid on the jobs, which drives up the price. Additionally, for the past three years, at least one contract had to be terminated due to the contractors doing a poor job. All medians being replaced are ones previously maintained by contractors. And Freeze says that it's not feasible for the city's engineering department to take on that contracting work either. We do not have the staff in-house in 
to, you know, pick up, I'll call it pick up the slack, right, and do the work that a contractor has been doing for us. So basically by the reducing the operating budget forces a structural change in how these medians are, are managed. Still, under the proposal, about 100 of the medians would remain under private contract. Many of the impacted medians are in high-traffic areas, such as on Packers Avenue and East Washington Avenue. Those are especially tricky to maintain, Free says, because the city usually will have to close lanes around the median in order for them to do their work. It's also why the city won't allow these medians to be used in the Adopt-A-Median program. They say that it's just too dangerous to have volunteers working in these medians. Not everyone is on board with the proposal, though. Older Brian Bedford represents portions of East Washington, where some of the medians would be converted. He says that, while he recognizes East Washington is dangerous, he thinks the dangers associated with the medians are overblown. I gotta tell you, I always appreciate a nod for safety, but let's be really honest that people cross our streets through crosswalks. Uh, adults uh, that would take on this volunteer opportunity they can manage the safety issues. Bedford adds that trees and plant life in the medians could help slow traffic. Keith Furman is the Common Council president and the sole sponsor on the amendment. He says that the rollout of information about the plan was the biggest issue. I mean, I think, you know, it's communication. Um, I don't think, you know, initially when this was um, released that, that there was there was the explanations that now exist on, on why and why and where this is taking place. I think, you know, initial reports seem to imply that it was going to be much wider than it actually is. The amendment was introduced by the City Engineering Division last month, and the City Finance Committee has already passed a motion to recommend the amendment to the full council. The amendment will go before the Common Council at their meeting next Tuesday. Reporting for WORT News... I'm Nate Wuggy Hout. Today, activists met on the Capitol steps to acknowledge missing and murdered Indigenous women. The Day of Awareness is a reminder of local efforts to stop the abduction, homicide, violence, and trafficking of Indigenous women. WORT reporter Andy Barrow has the story. Today, advocates for missing and murdered Indigenous women gathered on the steps of the state capitol to share stories about personal experiences and shine a light on the abduction, homicide, violence, and trafficking of Indigenous women in Wisconsin. The event was organized by the Wisconsin Women's Council, the Wisconsin Department of Justice's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force, and a state advocacy organization that translates in English to Woodland Women Incorporated. Together, they shared the stories of those affected by the ongoing crisis of violence against Indigenous people. Rachel Fernandez is an organizer, a Menominee Indian tribal legislator, and a member of the Wisconsin Women's Council. She is also a co-chair on the data subcommittee of the Wisconsin Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force created by Attorney General Josh Call in 2020. She called upon the local community to witness and acknowledge the testimony of survivors. People, I would like leaders out there across Indian country, across the state, across the nation, to really look at our survivors, our families of missing and murdered, and really listen to the stories that they have. There's stories that need to be told that, that haven't been said yet. And in those stories, you're going to hear the solutions to what we need. Rachel also talked about what justice means to herself and others in the community. Because my hope is to have a permanent office for us, 
have something permanent, not just, okay, this task force is, is happening now and then it ended and that's it. That's not acceptable to me. We have to keep this going. The momentum is here. The, the power and the strength of our people are here and it's now, and we have to keep going. We have to keep fighting. So um, that's what I would like to see is, is that continued after the report is done. Rachel also discussed the future of her work with the task force. And I know, you know, I, I listened to an elder earlier when we're, we were wrapping up and she said, just imagine all the other stories that haven't been told. And that's true. That's so true that we have so many out there that, that need to be told because in that healing, we're healing not only ourselves, we're healing our ancestors that never had that chance because of genocide and, and the violence, the oppression, the assimilation that was put upon us hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So I think having gatherings like this where our survivors and our families are centered, their voices are validated and uplifted, brings a different kind of justice. You know, we don't hardly ever get that judicially, but being in spaces where healing can occur, that's another form of justice for us. A 2018 report from the Urban Indian Health Institute, a national advocacy organization, found more than 500 cases of missing Indigenous women and girls. Reporting for WRT News, this is Andy Barrow. It's now 6.15 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The practice of religious faith is both intensely personal, but also public. People who may be deeply faithful may rarely share the experience of their religion with others. Correspondent David Ahrens is at work on short portraits of the diverse religious institutions in our area. It's called Our Faith Communities. In his first installment, Aaron takes a trip to the Beth Israel Center. I'm not a religious person. I grew up in a home that was Jewish, but largely non-observant. As a child, I was drawn to the mystery of Hebrew prayer, which I didn't understand. Even now, when I see a church, a mosque, a synagogue, or Buddhist or Hindu temple, I realize I know very little about these faith communities. I wanted to know what happens inside these places of worship, the sounds of the prayers, the singing, and calls to faith. A quarter of Americans say they don't identify with any religion. I assume that within the Wart listener community, the number is higher. But still, our friends, co-workers, and relatives are among the faithful, even if they don't talk about it. Perhaps these short segments will give us an understanding of the faith communities around us. The Beth Israel Center on Mound Street traces its roots back almost 100 years. In addition to its daily religious activities, the center's 275 households are engaged in programs ranging from preschool, after-school educational classes, activities for the elderly, 
and a Yiddish singing choir. The center is led by Rabbi Betsy Forrester. Rabbi Forrester is a graduate of UW. Before she came to Beth Israel, following her ordination in 2018, she worked in Jewish education for many years. I met with Rabbi Forrester shortly before the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. She started our discussion by reading a draft of the sermon that she would give Saturday morning, parts of which are exerted here. I learned to be a rabbi by practicing being one. There was no pixie dust, because there is no magic in making oneself real. The fact is that the real me and the real you is everything we are, past experiences and hopes for what we might yet be wrapped into every encounter. We are all that we have and all that we lack, all that is public and all that is private. I guess you might say we are a package deal." End quote. Human beings are super complicated. Both our inner lives and our actions are complex and loaded with all kinds of baggage mixed with inspiration. At times we are not quite what we hope to be, and at others we are more than we believed we could be. We are the things people see us do and the actions we don't take, the words we utter and the silences we keep, our public personae and our private lives. Our true selves are what we share and what we don't share, what we wish and what we regret, what we yearn for and what we've learned. We are our wisdom and our folly, and that is how we were created. All of who we are is the real thing at all times. The real you is hidden and revealed, perfectly imperfect and infinitely redeemable. For the Jew, there is no separate spiritual self and another earthly, sinful self. How would you describe the essence of a faithful Jew? Yeah, a faithful Jew is um, defined differently by different Jews and by different types of Jews. Mm -hmm. So it really does depend. I would say that some would say a faithful Jew is one who believes in God and follows the commandments and believes that God wants them to follow the commandments. I'm not sure that's the only way to be a faithful Jew. I think a faithful Jew might be a person who sees a mission as being part of the Jewish people, a mission for improving our world, a mission for bringing justice, compassion, and love, whether they see that as divine love, justice, and compassion, or simply good, into our world as part of a covenanted people. It may be different things to different people, truly. What is the importance of the Sabbath or Shabbat in Judaism? Every week is oriented around the Sabbath, which we call Shabbat. And our Sabbath is coming in soon, in, in about an, an hour or two, an hour and a half. And at that time, everything stops. And we turn to the life of the soul and living in the world as it is created and living in our relationships as they are with hope and with love. The rabbi explained the meaning of the term conservative Judaism. 
that word also is loaded, especially mm -hmm. in the state of Wisconsin. The conservative name means is that we came to conserve tradition and respond to modernity. It's a very delicate line, and actually conservative Judaism spans a wide breadth of practice. But what can be said is that it stands somewhere in between an orthodox understanding of tradition as much less malleable and a more liberal interpretation which would say that we're not, we're not bound to observe divine commands. So we would say we are bound to observe them and we're also bound to determine what it means to do that in the present moment. I asked Rabbi Forrester, what is the concept of repentance in Judaism? What tshuva or this idea of repentance means is that on a daily basis, we are striving for self-improvement. We're taking account of our deeds and our actions and how they align with our better sense of who we are and who we can be and what God wants from us. And so every day in our prayers, in fact, three times a day in our prayers um, during the week, during the work week, we pray for help in the process of teshuva, the process of, of doing this kind of eternal internal work. Redemption works broadly on, on a grand scale. It works for groups of people, for societies, for nations, and it works for the individual, and it's a constant process of seeking one's source and realigning. And that really is an act of faith, to get up in the morning and say the prayer um, that acknowledges our gratitude for having another chance to do right in this world. And the prayer actually says, great is your faith. In other words, that the divine has faith in us mm -hmm. and has invested in us for another mm -hmm. day, another chance to do well in this world. And then revelation um, on its surface means, I guess, the word of God as re revealed to human beings. And what it means for a Jew is that re revelation is ongoing. It's not something that happened once. It's not once and done at Sinai. Tell me about the importance of studying and scholarship in Judaism. And so we do a lot of studying, a lot of learning of Torah and many, many other sources from ancient to modern. And that study is inspiring. That study taps us into deeply held values and brings us into confrontation with ideas as well. And so there's a process of refining oneself and cultivating um, an intellect and a, an orientation to the world that is informed by this study that is seen as revelation and that then goes on to inform and influence our actions mm -hmm. and our relationships. So when a Jew is engaged in these processes, however that might play out, whatever that might look like for the individual Jew, I think they're practicing our faith. I asked Rabbi Forrester, what is the Jewish concept of God? God is many different things to many different people. 
it's a word. Mm -hmm. And it does mean many different things. And I, I think within the conservative movement, there's a broad range of understanding um, from God as a force that's underlying our experiences and that moves along with our experiences to a very personal God who we can talk to and maybe hear from sometimes in our lives if we're lucky. Many, many Jews have a notion of a personal God, and many, many Jews don't. And the range of acceptable ideas about God truly is there and um, is pretty authentic. The rabbi explained the importance of prayer in Judaism. From the moment I wake up, there's prayer on my lips. Mm -hmm. Everything that I eat is preceded by some kind of blessing, and there are blessings afterward as well. I eat kosher food, which means I, I can't just go out and grab something out there to eat if I'm hungry. In terms of prayer, the core prayer for Jews actually is a personal prayer. It's said three times a day, and mm -hmm. it's said standing. It's called the Amidah, which mm -hmm. means the standing prayer. And we do a lot of communal praying, but really the main core prayer is that one. So it is a personal prayer. The word that we use for praying in Hebrew is a word that's a reflexive term. And what it actually means is to reflect on oneself, which is quite different from petitioning. Our prayers certainly include petitions, but over and above the specific language of prayers, there's a sense that our prayers are more than petition. They're an attempt to get close to the divine, whatever the divine might mean to any individual. When we pray, we raise our consciousness and our awareness of our place in the universe, of our needs, of the needs of humanity in our world, of enduring values and concerns. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel famously said, prayer may not save us, but it makes us worthy of being saved. The Friday night service begins at sundown. These are some of the songs and prayers led by the prayer leader, who is called the cantor. WORT News and Our Faith Communities, this is David Ahrens. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. 
We'll hear about the drama-filled history of Pilsner beers. We'll look at the intersection of race and mental health. And Radio Chipstone deals with how we process art made by enslaved craftspeople. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week on our beer feature, Fermenting Wart, resident brewer Colin Morgan gives us the a little history of one of the world's most popular beers, the Pilsner beer. Pilsner beer. This week on Fermenting Wart, I will be discussing my personal favorite style, and one that has been coming back to craft breweries with gusto. There are a lot of pilsners in the world. The largest breweries in the world all brew this particular style of beer, and I'm willing to bet that most people's first experience with beer was a pilsner style of beer, whether they knew it or not. Over one billion barrels of this golden nectar is produced around the world each year. But why? Why is this style so beloved? And why are craft beer producers trying to get in on the action? So most of the large commercial breweries in the United States specialize in quote-unquote Pilsner-style beer, although they are more rightly called an American adjunct lager. So Anheuser-Busch has Budweiser, Miller has High Life, most of the Coors brands are essentially Pilsners. You can find these anywhere around the nation, in gas stations, in grocery stores, what have you. There are countless other smaller brands as well. I think I just saw Montucky. That is essentially a Pilsner beer. They are usually light in body and color, ranging from a pale yellow to maybe a deeper gold. Usually low bitterness and, frankly, low flavor. They are brewed mainly as a lager. This means that the brewers utilize a strain of a brewing yeast, much like baker's yeast, that ferments the beer at low temperatures. Ales are usually fermented at higher temperatures. Lagers are fermented at low temperatures. And this longer, colder fermentation process produces a squeaky clean beer with the goal of being as inoffensive as possible to consumers. And these are just the big commercial brewing lagers, the Pilsner-style lagers coming from the big breweries of the United States and the world. These big commercial breweries are absolutely masters of this type of beer. And the beers themselves are usually of excellent quality and are great for barbecues or after a hard day's work. These beers have earned their place in history and American culture, in my view. However, there is currently other beer sharing the shelves with their American cousins, and they share the same Pilsner name. So what are they? For a little brewing history, 
up until around 1800, pretty much all beer brewed was dark and probably a little smoky. The method for drying malt, which is the primary source of fermentable sugars in beer, has changed over time. So prior to around 1800, malt was usually dried and kilned either directly over a flame or using a source of heat that produced a good amount of smoke. This led to a darker, less consistent, smoky malt and resulting beer. If that sounds good to you, like it sounds good to me, uh, we are in luck because that style of beer has survived to this day and is brewed as Rauchbier, or smoked beer, and it's deliciously hammy, very much like a smoked sausage. But at some point around that 1800 mark, maltsters started to fire their kilns indirectly and produce a paler malt. The newfangled pale malt had none of the smokiness and had a lighter flavor profile. It is usually described today as biscuit-like or crackery. The beer produced from this new pale malt was also pale, or golden in color, and it absolutely blew people away. Everywhere across Europe and the United States, brewers caught the trend and started making pale beers. So there were pale ales in Britain, Helles beers in Germany, and countless other regional pale styles that survive to this day. And the quality of these beers were getting better year by year. And that was a problem for some folks in the city of Pilsen, Bohemia, a state in modern-day Czech Republic. So the Germans were starting to make better beer around this time, more efficient, and it was being sold cheaper in Bohemian taverns than the locally made beer. Naturally, the brewers of Pilsen were a bit peeved by this, and the tavern owners eventually had enough of the crap local beer brewers were making and demanded that a new brewery owned and operated by the people be constructed. How dramatic. Of course, in dramatic fashion, they followed this proclamation by pouring 36 barrels of local beer into the town square to the cheer of the onlookers. This doesn't happen nearly often enough today, in my personal opinion. So, a new brewery was constructed in Pilsen by 1842, and Columbus was sailing the ocean blue. Uh, wait, that's not right. Sorry, I meant the first pale lager was brewed in Pilsen. The brewery's first brewmaster, Josef Grohl, combined an exceptionally pale malt malted in Bohemia, now called Pilsner malt, with specialty German spalt hops to make a sparkling golden lager. This beauty later became known as the first Pilsner, or Pilsner Urquell, meaning the original Pilsner. Today, they even market it as the world's first pale lager, and although there are historical records to prove otherwise, I'd say at the very least it's probably the world's finest. So what does that taste like exactly? Unlike American versions, it has a full body and mouthfeel is more golden than the pale straw that you find here in the States, and is a perfect canvas for the gorgeous Czech Saz hops. That is one of the big differences between American versions and European versions of this beer. I believe that a good, high-quality Pilsner is an excellent canvas for the hop profile. 
which normally people don't associate with those lagers. And radio is not the best medium for describing the taste of this beer, but it has a flavor reminiscent of freshly baked bread with a sharp smack of those herbaceous, almost minty hops. And there's a touch of popcorn at the end as well of this Pilsner Urquell. And trust me, it's absolutely worth it. Okay, so that's where Pilsner came from, but how does it compare to the others you'd find in the U.S.? It seems to me that there are some breweries that are taking on that old world style of Pilsner, and they're doing it much more seriously these days. In the past, I've had what some breweries call Pilsner that really was a far cry from a true Pils. I believe that the local water does have something to do with that. Our water here in Madison is highly alkaline and very hard, as opposed to the crystal clear, soft water of Pilsen. But I also think that now some brewers are just rediscovering how great a true Pilsner can be, and they are making great strides at recreating it. The Great Dane in Madison, for example, always has a German style and a Czech style of Pilsner on tap that will give you a good idea of the differences between the two. I think that Clint over at Working Draft is doing an excellent job with his lagers, and his To Those Who Wait Czech Pilsner is one of the best I've ever had. And of course, the giant New Glarus Brewing just came out with Pilsner 22, which is a German style, and it is absolutely a must-try. I believe it's going to win them some awards this year. So, in conclusion, Pilsner is a beautiful historic style that is the most copied beer style in the world, from mass-produced American adjunct lagers to craft Pilsners. There's really a lot to love about this king of beer styles. So next time you're at the store, pick up maybe some of each. Try the differences and see for yourself. Thank you for listening. The feeling of understanding and being seen is an important factor for any therapist. But for people of color, that can be a little more tricky. How can a patient of color express race-based trauma to a white therapist? On this week's Isthmus on Wart, WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Stephen Potter, the author of the cover story for this month's edition, released today. In his story, Potter looks at the intersectionality between race and mental health and one Madison-based clinic looking for a solution. So, Stephen, just to start things off here, tell me about your cover story. What's it about and why did you decide to write about this? Sure. The cover story for Isthmus this week is about Anissa's Family Therapy, which is a unique therapy center uh, in Madison that provides services, you know, by therapists and counselors of color for people of color. Um, I was drawn to this story uh, for that premise. You know, there's an interesting dynamic that goes on between a therapist and the clients and patients that they serve. And I was told by you know a number of different people that Anissa is doing great work in the community. Um, by providing therapists and counselors of color uh, to serve patients and clients of color, and it helps them uh, get to the root of the problem, especially if they're talking about a racial challenge or microaggression or something of that nature. It really helps to have a person who has that shared experience um, and that shared history talk through that issue with the uh, client and patient. And so a lot of your story, what you go into, is sort of the intersection between race and mental health, specifically here in America, and I guess more specifically here in Dane County. But so I sort of want to ask, 
one of the things that you go into is the stigma behind getting help in the area of black mental health. Uh, what can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So what I was told by my sources and the people I interviewed for the story is that there is a stigma for people of color seeking out mental health help. Um, number one, you know, the healthcare system has been seen as a tool of oppression in the past and historically uh, been viewed that way. Also, um, you know, people of color um, may think that mental health therapy is only for white people um, or that they might be seen as others um, as weak or deficient if they're going to seek mental health therapy. Um, so there are just a number of stigmas behind that specifically. So that's why they seeking out, you know, a therapist of color. Um, you know, you already have a lot of shared experience there and can even talk about some of those issues that, that may have, you know, stopped them from coming to therapy in the first place. And then sort of on that note, uh, you also go into the therapist shortage here in America, and that is only exasperated for black therapists. So I want to ask, what is sort of being done to try and address this? There are, you know, a number of, of recruitment um, efforts underway. Um, there is a, you know, as we know, a, a therapist and counselor shortage in America. Uh, my research you know, I was looking up statistics from the American Psychological Association, the American uh, Psychiatry Association, and I found that about two to eight percent of all therapists and counselors are people of color. Um, so it's you know not very many at all. And um, adding to that is just this this general shortage. Um, and so there's big long wait lists um, that are happening. Um, and you know part of it is that you know being a therapist, a counselor is a lot of school, um, maybe six, seven years in some cases, and then you come out, you don't make a lot of money. Um, it's very challenging work, it's very heavy work. Um, so there is a lot um, of, of difficulty recruiting people, but there are efforts to recruit them. There's a group uh, that I quoted in the story, the National Association of Black Counselors. Um, and then there are also other, avenues going on, like the one uh, partnership between the Nisus Therapy Center and the UW-Madison Department of Psychiatry, which they are going to be teaming up and have already started actually um, putting psychiatry residents um, will be placed at Anesis. Um, these are, uh, you know, people who specifically want to serve clients of color um, and help them there. Uh, so that's help, hopefully going to alleviate some of the backlog that they're seeing. Looking at the intersection between mental health and race here in America, which is obviously the crux of your story here. What can you sort of tell me about that? What does that intersection look like? Well, I think that, you know, there are a lot of issues going on right now that are very unique to um, people of color and, and how they process some of these issues, um, such as, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the, the murder of George Floyd and Tony Robinson here locally. Um, and, and working through those issues um, with someone who doesn't have those experiences um, and, and doesn't have that, you know, direct first-person knowledge of discrimination can be more difficult than uh, working through the, so those issues who, uh, with people who do have the, that knowledge. So it's, it's a real uh, strong effort to bring together people who have those shared experiences so they can talk about things. So that kind of alleviates the burden of explanation in some of these issues so they can get right down to the issue right away and help um, uh, the, the client who's going through some, some challenges. And Stephen, I'm sure we could talk all day about this, but we're running up against the clock a little bit. Is there just any final thoughts you'd like to share? Anything that you'd like people to know uh, going into your article? 
Um, yeah, just this is a very unique group. It's, uh, it's serving about 1,800 clients. Um, they uh, speak a number of different languages, English, uh, Spanish, Hmong at the, at the center there. And um, I think it's, it's worth checking out in Isthmus. I've been talking with Stephen Potter, who wrote this month's cover story for Isthmus, about the need for black therapists and the intersection between race and mental health. You can read Stephen's full story online at isthmus.com or in the latest print edition of Isthmus, uh, which came out just earlier today. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Chipstone Foundation's current exhibition entitled Troubled Like the Restless Sea is inspired by a passage from My Bondage, My Freedom, written by Frederick Douglass in 1855. The exhibit, located in the Milwaukee Art Museum, features objects created by enslaved craftspeople and brings to light the problematic history behind everyday objects that made the lives of slaveholders comfortable. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields speaks with Chipstone curator Dr. Ruthie Dibble and Dr. Tiffany Momin, founder and co-director of the Black Craftspeople Digital Archive. One of the things that had always bothered me about the decorative arts, and I should say, um, I was introduced to the decorative arts in 2016 as a graduate student. My initial research up until that point had been historically Black colleges and universities um, and post-emancipation communities. So I was moving into a field uh, that was, one, not my time period, and two, that focused (laughs) very heavily on objects and not architecture like I was used to. And so I went to a summer program and fully immersed myself in the decorative arts, and all I could keep thinking while I was there, which directly ties into uh, uh, Frederick Douglass and, and the inspiration for this exhibition, was that nobody is talking about how these people are making their money. Nobody is talking about the money behind these objects, behind these homes filled with these objects. Nobody's talking about where the money comes from that's supporting all of this luxury. And where it was coming from was slavery and the exploitation of enslaved people. So when I was told about this project and I saw that it was going to talk about, uh, but doesn't get talked about when it was going to tell the truth behind some of these decorative arts um, objects, I was all for it. I was like, count me in. It, you know, and the thing about it, Tiffany, is that when I think about decorative arts, when I look around my home and think about how they speak to who I am as a person, what I like to have around me. I don't know that I could surround myself and be comfortable with things that I know came from suffering. So this is idea of the beauty and suffering and being able to not only lavish in this luxury that came from blood, sweat, pain, and death and terror, but also present it in a way that I don't know, speaks to your accomplishments that somehow makes you 
This speaks to your position in society. So your position in society and your money and the options you have in your house is based on taking advantage of and enslaving those who have nothing. Oh, in- including their own names anymore. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, this is something that I, I struggled with this. I sometimes still struggle with this, right? Because I do love antiques. I've loved antiques since I was a child. Uh, but, you know, you grow up, you become educated, and then you learn more and you realize, oh, this is what's happening. Um, and so one of the ways that I have approached that very thought uh, is to reframe the story. So you have the story of these Black craftspeople who are making these objects that people love and, and collect, and that still to this very day sell for thousands of dollars at auction. And the way that I have reframed this is to think about it in terms of the artistry. Because we know as much as people in those eras like to say that, oh, well, you know, um, enslaved people can't do this, they aren't this, they aren't that bright, et cetera, et cetera. There's artistry in that work. There's artistry in that work. There's agency in that work. And there is identity in that work. Mm -hmm. And every time in doing this research that I uncover um, a piece of furniture, for example, that a Black craftsperson signed, because while they are very rare, they do still exist. I feel very proud about that, Mm -hmm. that this person made this object, signed their name, staked their claim to it, said, this is me, this is my work, I'm going to sign this despite uh, the obstacles that are in front of me, despite the oppression in which I live. That makes me feel very proud. One of the things that I'm so struck by about Tiffany's statement is that in a way it's it's uh, very like old school to celebrate the individual and the agency of the maker and the craftsperson. And museums are very comfortable doing that in galleries of European painting, right? Yep. Like we want to read all about what Michelangelo was doing in 1513, et cetera. Um, but that way of framing uh, historical black craftspeople and particularly enslaved black craftspeople has really not caught up with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's really exciting to see Tiffany not only doing that work, but also showing that there's so much more to find out about the past and the lives of uh, Black craftspeople. Talk to me about some of those objects. Tiffany, was there one in particular that stood out for you? Absolutely. So in in looking at the list of objects that we had, of course, we had several. And I, I should mention that we're doing this throughout the height of the pandemic. So it's it's us meeting virtually But in looking at the objects that we had and thinking about the stories that we could tell, because again, sort of the heart of this project was telling the truth, right? Sort of presenting the object to you as you would normally see it in a museum, but then sort of flipping that and going, here's what you don't see when you, when you would, you know, traditionally go to a museum. And one of those objects was a charger. It's a charger that depicts Cape Coast Castle on the Gold Coast of Africa. And when you look at this charger, it's beautiful, it's blue and white, it's very detailed. Um, In the center of the charger there, um, you have a image of the Cape Coast Castle, very calm waters. Um, You have an image of a uh, big boat with its sails, and then there's a a smaller boat 
uh, there in the foreground. So it's sort of painting this very idyllic scene of the coast of Africa and this and Cape Coast Castle, right? So you might see it, you might look at it, and you might go, "Oh, this this looks great." You know, this this maybe this looks like some place you'd like to vacation someday. But what's missing from this story, which is what makes this object so intriguing, was that Cape Coast Castle was a British trading post um, in modern day Ghana. And that trading post, people exchanged a variety of goods, everything from different foods and spices, other objects, blankets, gold, and enslaved people. And so that's that's the truth of the matter. You could come to this castle and get all of those things, including people. And that's not the scene you get on that charger. How something that's such a part of our everyday life can be so disturbing. Like, you know, that was used. Someone probably consumed Mm -hmm. a meal off that and was fine with that. Absolutely. I'll tell you something. So as a historian, I'm a historian of the later period. And so one of the things that I will never look at the same after working on this exhibition is a pineapple. Mm. Um, because I ha- I mean, you see the pineapple motif constantly in the decorative arts and I had just always associated, it's, it's one of these things that's supposed to be welcoming, right? To signal welcoming and in working on this exhibition, because there is a pineapple shaped, um, teapot in the exhibition, it presented an opportunity to dig deeper into what pineapples meant and how the pineapple is, of course, a symbol of wealth, but also a symbol of empire, um, connecting it back to the plantations in the Caribbean where it was grown and how the uh, pineapples get transported to uh, Great Britain and how they become this sort of luxury fruit, essentially. But that's tied to the exploitation of enslaved individuals. And I used to have a pineapple cookie jar in my kitchen that is no longer there because I I couldn't stand the sight of it anymore. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Field. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Colin Morgan, David Ahrens, and Jennifer Field. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't miss an episode of WORT's local news. Listen to the news as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. <laughs>